Good morning. Today's scripture reading will be from Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 through 3. Exodus 20, verses 1 through 3. And God spoke all these words. I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You know what I haven't done in a little while? I haven't showed you pictures of Luke. I'm going to go ahead and do that real quick. Um, he's, he really is the light of my life right now. Uh, and I hope always will be, of course. But I have to say, he's a bit of a knucklehead. I, now, I kid, but in all honesty, he will do things that make me wonder if he has any critical thinking skills at all. Like, I'll be holding him, and he'll be perfectly safe and sound in my arms. And he will suddenly try to leap out of them as if he can fly, as if he, can, he, know, he has some kind of plan, right? Maybe he sees something on the ground that he wants to investigate and he'll start leaning that direction and then he'll even try to wiggle out of my arms just to get to it. And I'm thinking, why would you do that? You can't fly. You can't run or walk. He knows this, right? So why would, would he do this? And so... Now, to be truthful, I think he's wiser than I say because I've caught him steering me before where I'm holding him and he'll treat me like I'm a ship and he's, he's on the rudder, right? He'll lean one way and I'll start going that way because it's something he wants to do and then he'll do the same, you know. So I, he's wiser than I say and I jest, of course. But I think we all understand what I mean here that I, as his father, I'm going to have to stop him from doing things for his own good. I'm going to have to continually do this. We're going to have to block off the stairs pretty soon. We're going to have to baby-proof the house in many ways, ways that I probably haven't foreseen yet, because as his parents, we want what's best for him. We have to put up barriers so that he's safe. When we put him to sleep at night, we don't put him on a high bed with no walls. We put him in a crib that has bars, that has a barrier in place. And it's so that he is protected. It's not because... We want to ruin his fun or stifle his creativity. We want him to be safe. And so we put these barriers in place. I would say that I can't wait for Luke to grow out of this, this, I don't know, sense of adventure, let's call it. I can't wait for him to grow out of it, but let's be brutally honest for a moment. Are adults really that different? We dive headfirst into danger all the time with no plan of escape. Maybe not literally, in some cases, yes. But we are ensnared by sin all the time. And we have no plan of escape. We dive headfirst into what is most dangerous for us. And we, it's like we have no critical thinking skills whatsoever. And God has placed barriers in place for ourselves. And it's not because, again, He wants to ruin our fun. It's because He knows what's best for us. God gives law. He gave law to keep us within the bounds of where we ought to be because He knows what's best for us. He's the one who created us and so He knows what we need and how we should be. He knows that if we go a certain direction, even though we think it sounds great in our minds, it's going to lead down a terrible path. It's going to lead us into danger. God knows this, and so He set up barriers in place. Last week, Richard 
began this journey that we're going to continue together where we're looking at the Ten Commandments, otherwise known as the Decalogue or the Ten Statements. These amazing first ten laws of the, of the Torah that are, are just an amazing, wonderful code, ancient code that we can go back and look to. And the first thing I wanted to do is get us all on the same page because I think we need to approach these laws in a very specific way. We don't need to approach these laws as if God is a dictator trying to control the masses by putting these, by giving you know, these laws, putting them in place. We need to think of him as a father who's sitting his kids down on the couch and laying out the rules. We need to think of him as a father who builds a fence in his backyard. Not because he wants to stifle his kids' creativity, but because he doesn't want his kids running out into the road. We need to think of it, these laws as God building a gate around the pool. Not because he wants his kids to sweat drops, you know, to sweat a lot in, in a hot summer day, but because he doesn't want them drowning. These laws were given to the people of Israel as a means to protect them, as a means to build a stable and good society. God is not a dictator who said, you need to do things my way because I said so. There are reasons undergirding every law that he gives. And and when one follows these laws, it's better for us. But I think so often when we hear the word law, we get a certain picture in our mind. And it's a very different picture than what the Bible, or how the Bible would describe it. In Psalm 1, verses 1 and 2, the great biblical scholar is described. A great, a great uh, at the time, Jew and a great Christian is described. And it says this, How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and his law... In his law, he meditates day and night. Have you ever met anyone who really delighted in meditating on the IRS tax code? You see, the law of God is not like the IRS tax code. It's something that we should delight in. It's something that we should meditate on day and night because it's a joy in our lives. That's very different. That's a very different approach Right? It's a very different approach to the law than, than let's say, the mo- that modern day equivalent, right, of our, of our state codes and our, our federal codes. It's a very different thing. It was also a very different thing when you compared it to the other ancient religious codes of the time and the other ancient statutory codes of the time, for that matter. Because, well, for years, commentators have been comparing the Ten Commandments with other codes. Some even predate the Ten Commandments. And <coughs> some of the differences are astounding. Let's go ahead and look at a couple of, the, uh, a couple of them <coughs> before we dive into the first of the commandments. I'm going to do this really quickly, uh, but I think these are very important. Number one, the law of Moses, starting here with the Ten Commandments, is unique from other codes because it's a covenant. It's a relationship between two parties. A contract, if you will. And both parties have their obligations that they must fulfill. And in this case, the, the people of God are, are 
given these obligations, these laws of the Torah, and, and this is their end of the bargain. This is their part of the covenant that they are trying to follow. And think, we think of it like a marriage covenant, right? When two people enter into a marriage, there are stipulations in place. Now, a lot of times we, we go through the, the vows of a marriage and we don't think about them very often. I hope you thought about them if you got married. But we say in sickness and in health, we say for better or worse. And, and basically, it's, I don't think we necessarily say this every time, but one of the stipulations is you shall not go out and, and have a relationship with someone else, right? That's part of the covenant between two married people. And so this implies that in the law of God, it's not just, again, a dictator passing down laws. It is a relationship being forged. A relationship in which there are two sides fulfilling their ends of this, of this contract, as it were. Secondly, another thing that makes the Ten Commandments so unique is that both religious and social obligations are put into the same boat. <coughs> They're both expressions excuse me, of divine will. Which leads us to our third as well, but we'll get to that in a second. But unlike other treaties and other, uh, that are between rulers and the people, this treaty is concerned with how the people treat one another individually. God is not only concerned with how the people treated Him, He was also concerned with how they treated one another. And that also, because he's combining these two things, he's combining social obligations and religious obligations, there's never a point in, under this law that a, an unethical person could also be considered religious. Religion is now all of your life, not just a part of it. So you can't be a horrible person to your neighbors and still be considered a very religious person, which was very different than the other codes at the time. Fourth, unlike other legal codes, the Ten Commandments are universal. Right is right, wrong is wrong, no matter where you are, no matter who uh, you are, no matter where you're from. Right? Now, that doesn't mean necessarily that, they were, that other people of the world were a part of this covenant, but right was right no matter where they were. And the same, I think one of the things you can really, one of the ways in which you can see the universality of the law is where God gave the Ten Commandments. Gave them in the wilderness on a mountain, not in the promised land. And so the Jews would at least take from that that they are to follow this code regardless of whether or not they're in the promised land. When they're in exile, it's still applicable to them. And the same is true in the promised land. Number five, and this is important, it doesn't contain any abstract moral principles such as be a good person. Everything is direct. And everything can be measured objectively. You see, I, I kind of mentioned this before when I was talking about Luke, but we as humans, we think we know what's good for us, but we're often wrong. We're often wrong. And, and most people who are evil, most people who are bad, think of themselves as good. Which again leads us to our next point, which is that nearly all of these Ten Commandments are prohibitions. They're all stated in the negative. All except two, the fourth and the fifth commandments. <coughs> Excuse me. And even those commandments, when you're talking about uh, the Sabbath, keeping the Sabbath day, much of, of how that is defined is a prohibition, right? You shall not work on the Sabbath. 
Okay? The same is also true of honor your father and mother. Even though that's stated in the positive, it's implying a lot of do nots. Okay? So there's an argument to be made where basically all of the Ten Commandments are prohibitions. So why would God set forth a law that is, you shall not do this, rather than a law that is a lot of do's, do this, do these wonderful deeds? Well, I think the words of one of the commentators I read said it very nicely. He said this, The first prerequisite for a stable, decent society is for people to desist from wrongful behavior. In the words of the famous rule of physicians, First, do no harm. Right? Think of that. Think of that, how important that rule is for a physician. First, do no harm. That's the first thing they have to consider. Are they going to harm someone by trying this crazy new therapy that they think might help? Right? Are they going to do more harm than good? These are things they must consider. The first thing that has to be on their mind is first, do no harm. The same is true for a stable society. Because people may have good intentions, but good intentions rarely guarantee good results. You've heard the phrase, I'm sure, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. Again, we don't know what's best for us all the time. And so if we, we may have good intentions, but we might be going down the, the wrong path into dangerous territory. And so it's important that we first, that God started off with these laws by saying, first, don't do these things. Okay? You may have some greater good in mind, but if you're, let's say, committing murder for the greater good, you're not following the law. Okay? And many people have been killed for, quote-unquote, the greater good. The last point I'll make about this is that all of these commands are addressed to individuals. Now, in English, the word you is pretty versatile. It could be spoken to a greater group of people. When I say you, I'm talking to everyone. Or I could point in at one person and I could say you, and that would be me speaking to someone individually. See, this is why I'm a fan of, a fan of the word y'all. Okay? In, in the South, we don't have this problem where we can confuse. Is he talking to more than one person? No, I'm kidding. But in Hebrew, it's kind of similar. They actually have a word that's similar to y'all. In other words, it's the plural form of you. But that word isn't being used in the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments are addressed to individuals. It says, you. I brought you out of the land of Egypt. You individually. He says, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not commit murder. He's speaking to people on a one-on-one level. And I think we, we kind of miss that sometimes, especially in the English. <coughs> Because we think of this as a grand covenant between God and, the, and this nation. But really, it's a covenant between God and Moses, and God and Aaron, and God and Ahimelech, and God and, you know, fill in the blank with whoever was there. God was in an individual relationship with every man, woman, and child in Israel. Not just the nation as a whole. And so all of these combined show us that God is not some dictator bequeathing his laws from atop a mountain because he doesn't want to be a part of his people. He's doing this like a father. He's doing this like a husband in covenant relationship with his wife. He has a relationship. 
And so when we approach these laws, when we approach the text in this manner, it's with this in mind that let's turn to Exodus 20, verses 1 through 3. They were just read to us a moment ago. And it all starts here. Commandment number 1, verse 3. You shall have no other gods before me. First things first, one might say. It all starts here. Every commandment is built upon this one principle. You can't follow the other commandments if you don't start here. You shall have no other gods before me. Everybody say this with me. Just repeat this after I say it. There is one God and His name is Yahweh. Go ahead. There is one God and His name is Yahweh. There's no other gods. Only He exists as as the creator of the universe, as the one who is almighty, as the one who is ever-present, the one who is and will be or, and is to come, who was and is and is to come. I'll get there eventually. God is the only God. And we might ask, okay, you shall have no other gods before me. Who is this God that we are serving? The people of Israel might have had that question. Well, God makes sure to describe himself before verse 3. You see, we can't just read this commandment on its own. We have to read the statement that comes in the verse directly before. Let's read verses 1 and 2. It says, Then God spoke all the wor- these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Before this great list, before this, these Ten Commandments are, 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 are listed, God starts off by describing Himself. He says, I am the Lord. I am Yahweh, your God. That's individually, your God. I brought you out of the house of slavery. And He's describing what He's done for them. Right in, in Exodus 6, which we've quoted several times, God lists off things that He will do. He says, I will set you free. I will bring you to the promised land. Now God is saying, look at what I've done. I've fulfilled my end of the bargain. Not all of it quite yet, but He's fulfilled enough of it that His word can be trusted. Right? He's brought them out of the land of slavery. He's freed them. He's shattered their chains. And He's done all of this because He wants them to live free. I want us to notice the order in which he lists this. The people of Israel weren't set free because they followed the law. They weren't set free, they weren't saved because they were holy. No, God has set them free first and now he's showing them how to be holy. God set them free, he rescued them, he saved them first and now they're, they're trying to fulfill their end of the covenant, their end of the bargain. <clears throat> excuse me, by following these laws. And I think we can oftentimes get that order mixed around a little bit. We need to be careful ourselves because the same is true for us. God saved us and made us holy. He didn't save us because we're holy. He didn't save you because you were a good person. I'm sure you're a wonderful person. But God didn't save you because of that. Because only one person is actually good and that's God. Truly good. So we can't get the order mixed around. God is the one who set us free. And he now He expects us to live free. Free from the oppression of sin. 
free from the addictions of this world, free from that slave master who was very wicked and vile to us, that slave master Satan and sin, free from all of that. But oftentimes we misunderstand this freedom because God is not just setting us free to to do whatever we want. Far be it. In Exodus chapter 8, and verse 1, God says to Moses, Go to Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, Let my people go. And oftentimes we stop right there, right? That's the famous phrase, Let my people go, right? That's the famous phrase. We should add to the song because that's not the end of the statement. God says, Let my people go that they may serve me. You see, he's taking them out of bondage into a covenant relationship. He's taking them out of one slavery into a a position in which they choose a new master. Freely, they choose him. But as Paul said, you're going to be a master of something. Everyone, or excuse me, you're going to be a slave of something. Everyone's going to have a master. It's either going to be God or it's going to be sin. And so God is not just setting them free so that they can do whatever they want. And I think we misunderstand the idea of freedom. He wants them to live free from their oppressive sin. And join this covenantal relationship. Again, a relationship that's very similar to marriage. (coughs) When Carissa and I got married, one of the rules is that we can't see other people. Okay? Sorry, Carissa. One One of the rules... One of the stipulations is that she can't just decide out of the blue, you know what, I need another man. I, need, I don't need, you know, one relationship just isn't enough. I'm going to go out and find some more. I'm going to go out and find someone else. Sorry, Chris. But that's, that's what we're talking about here as well with God. This is a covenantal relationship. This is a marriage between God and man. And God is now saying in, in verse 3, you shall have no other gods before me. He's prohibiting them from cheating on him. Saying we're married now. Don't go and cheat on me. Don't commit adultery. Of course, the book of Hosea makes that very clear. That any time the people of Israel turned to idols, they turned to false gods, they were committing adultery. They were committing spiritual adultery. Oh, but the people of Israel, they committed adultery all the time, didn't they? They turned all sorts of other gods to Molech, to Baal, to Zeus. They were the other men, as it were. Right? We see a story or a movie maybe where the person finds out their spouse is cheating on them and they say, who are they? Right? Who are they? It's Zeus. It's Molech. It's Baal. It's these false gods. And oftentimes, because of that, that reality, we look back at this law and we think to ourselves... That doesn't apply to me. Because our modern sensibilities have helped us to realize that pagan gods are false. There's no reason to turn to a pagan god. I serve the true God. C.S. Lewis called it chronological snobbery. When we look back in time and we see ancient peoples and we think of ourselves as so much better than they were when in reality, we're not much different. Oh, we may not serve Zeus. 
We may not serve Molech, but in many cases we serve false gods. And these false gods take on different and new names. So let's talk about a couple of these false gods. The first thing we need to understand... We need to understand what I mean by this. Because we may, not, we may offer the true God lip service, but our lives may be revolving around something else or someone else. And so the question is, who or what is at the center of our lives? Who are we revolving around? Where do you spend all your time? Or who do you spend all your time with? Or what do you spend all your time doing? What can't you live without? What do you use your money for? All of these are questions that I think we should ask when, when trying to figure out what our functional God is. The functional God, that's basically, in, in essence, what the God that we're truly serving, no matter what it is we're saying out loud. If we were to zoom out on your life and we were to ask these questions, what would the answer be? I heard a comedian say a joke that I, I found humorous, and uh, it goes something like this. Imagine... The, imagine that aliens were observing humankind from their spaceships and imagine that they're looking down on a park where someone is walking their dog and they're cleaning up after their dog, right? They're, they're taking the, the plastic baggie and they're picking it up. And, it's, and he says, who do you think the aliens would think is in charge in that scenario? The dog, right? Anybody here have a cat? Your cat is in charge of your household, right? That's the idea here. That was the joke, and I found it humorous. But let me ask you this. If we were to take a bird's eye view of your life, if we were to zoom out, who would we think is in charge? Who would we think you're serving? Who would we think your life revolves around? Because that, the answer to that question, is your functional God. Again, it may not be named Zeus, but it, be, it might be something, named something else other than Yahweh. So let's go over a few of these uh, modern false gods really quickly. Number one, ourselves. Perhaps this is the most common false god in our culture. And it's easy to fall into this trap. Maybe it's your own dreams or your aspirations. right? You have a dream, career, but it's a career that's going to take you away on Sundays regularly. Maybe you have a dream to be the, the best football player in high school, but they practice on weekends. Who, who do you serve? What's most important? Of course, that's just one example. There are many, many dreams. And, you know, we live in a culture that tells you, go after your dream. And that's a wonderful idea if your dream is good. But some dreams aren't worth it if they take the place of God at the center of your life. So maybe it's your dreams. Or maybe it's your own comfort. Maybe it's your own pleasure. In, first, in, in Philippians, Paul talked about people whose God is their stomach. Maybe that's your God, your functional God. Or maybe it's your own security. I've seen so many Christians who are unwilling to take that extra step in their Christian walk, who are unwilling to talk to a neighbor about the gospel, who are unwilling 
to, to spread that, that beautiful message because they're afraid of what will happen to them. Their own security, perhaps even their own comfort zone, has become their functional God. Is that yours? Again, anything that replaces God at the center of your life has become a false God. Only He can take that rightful place at the top spot in your heart. And we do that. We, we, sometimes we take Him out and we put ourselves in place. But we don't just put ourselves in place. Sometimes we put other people in place. Love is a wonderful thing. It's the, great, the greatest of these is love, right? Love, when it is morally guided, is incomparably beautiful. But sometimes it can be manipulated. And sometimes we can take this love and we can make it into a false god where we think all we need is love. All we need... That's a song, isn't it? All we need is love. No, no, no. Unless you're saying love is God and you, know, and you go that route. Okay. But here's my point. I've seen so many people... Let's say... Here's just throw an example out there. Let's say there's a single person who's so desperate to find a spouse that they, that they throw their life at the first person who's finally willing to be with them. Okay, that came out wrong. But you get what I'm saying. They throw themselves at this person and that person becomes a god to them. That person is put up on a pedestal where all they want to do is serve that person. And in essence, that relationship is doomed to fail because no one can replace God no matter how good they are. No one can fulfill the function of God. It can't be your spouse. It can't be your children. It can't be your friends. No one can replace God at that center spot of your life. Then they become a false God. Or maybe it's, thirdly, reason. There's a popular movement growing in our society today that states reason is all we need to create a moral and just society. A Yale professor of philosophy said this, said rationality or the attempt at it takes the place of faith. Take reason seriously. Let it shape belief and conduct freely. It will shape them aright if anything can. In other words, this professor, like many others in our education systems today, like many others throughout America today, say that religious thinking, that faith is a detriment to society and reason should be upheld as what is most important. Because if we were all be rational, then we wouldn't hurt each other, we wouldn't harm each other. Which is just not true. Many people act rationally. Many people use rationality as a tool for evil. As an ends to, uh, as, a, as a means to get to their ends. Right? I heard it said this way, reason is like a map. No map tells you where you should go. It just tells you how to get there. Reason is a tool that can be used for good or evil. And yes, we need reason in our lives. But it can't just be reason. And there are certain things that are simply unreasonable. For instance, the God, creator of the universe, giving His only Son for a wretch like me, for a wretch like you. That's not very rational. But praise God He did. Reason cannot take the place of God. Nor can religion. Now this one may seem weird, right? 
Because, well, if God's at the center of life, shouldn't then religion be at the center of our lives? The problem is, and this is a problem that happened with the Jews very often, happened with the Pharisees, that oftentimes we can take ritualism, the ritualism of religion, and make that the center of our lives. And in reality, we're putting our own goodness at the center of our lives. We're, We're creating a false god out of our own holiness, out of our own spirituality. And this is what the Pharisees did, and this is what I had mentioned before, we cannot do. We, we can't get the order mixed around. God is the one who saved us out of the house of slavery. He didn't do it because we're holier than other people. And so there is this holier-than-thou mindset that some people who are religious can get into. And what they've done is they've created a false god out of their own religion. Now notice, all of the things on this list are good things. But they can be manipulated. Anything, whether good or bad, if it takes the place of God, is a false God. And it needs to be taken down. I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. It all starts here. One of the greatest blessings and curses of having Luke right now <laughs> is that if we are not in his vision, his field of vision, he goes ballistic. You know, we, if we, we're looking at him, then we walk away from him for a second, he, he just starts crying. Because we, his mom and daddy, are at, at the center of of his life. He needs us to be ever-present. He needs us there, or life isn't good. Now, when we're holding him, he can then look at other things, right? He can then start trying to wiggle out of my arms because he doesn't know what he wants, apparently. But the, we are, in essence, the center of his life right now. And that's a wonderful thing. It also means we can't leave him alone. In the same way, God needs to be at the center of our lives. He is the one who we need to be around all the time. When, he, when we are in His presence, our face lights up in joy. When we are in trouble, we cry out to Him. He is number one. He is the center. So my final question this morning, it stems from an ancient code, but it's more relevant to us than perhaps any other question. Who or what is at the center of your life? Is it God? If you can answer God, then that's, a, that's wonderful. If you can honestly answer God, then that's wonderful. Or if you say, you know what, I'm not so sure, then I hope you'll ponder this over the next few days. I hope you'll take a bird's eye view of your life. You'll zoom out and you'll say, you'll ask yourself questions like, what can't I live without throughout, let's say, a day-to-day schedule? What is it that I just can't live without? What is it that I would most like to spend my money on? How do I spend all of my time throughout the week? Ask these questions to yourself and figure out what your functional God is. We're also going to have an invitation song in just a few moments where you can come forward and we can talk with you, we can pray with you as a congregation, we can help you in whatever way that, uh, that you need. <coughs> the song that we're going to sing is called 
10,000 reasons. I'd like to read a line from it really quickly. It says, You're rich in love and you're slow to anger. Your name is great and your heart is kind. For all your goodness I will keep on singing. 10,000 reasons for my heart to find to bless the Lord. Here's the thing about God. If you put Him at the center of your life, you're not going to regret it. If you put Him at the center of your life, if you let Him have that highest spot in your heart, you're going to live the life you were always meant to live. We are meant to worship God. That He is the one who we are meant to follow. I said yesterday, I wanted to take a snapshot of it, so I'm going to quote it now. Let's hope, hope I get the words right. But I was talking about Twitter and how I don't like the word follower, how the word follower is used in Twitter. Right? There's like a person on Twitter who has followers. And I said, I don't like that. Because if we're going to use the word follower, then the only person who should have a Twitter account is Jesus. Okay? So I thought it was a cool line, but maybe, maybe it just doesn't land. But either way, I think you get my point. God is the one who deserves to be at the center of our lives. Only Him. That place, that spot was made for Him. And when we put Him at the center of our lives, we're going to find joy in it. We're going to fulfill a life that we were meant to fulfill. And we're only going to want to keep on praising Him. So let's praise Him together. Let's stand and let's sing Him to Him right now.